Good evening, traveler, and welcome back. Please, come in. Can I offer you a drink? Oh, you must be drained from the hike. Trailing easy at this time of year. Then again, you don't stumble here by following the trail now, do you? <laughs> so what brings you here on this lovely spring night? <sighs> Not that again. Come along, traveler. You know how old houses that have their own little charm? Well, everything comes at a price. You'd be amazed at the size of the vermin we get around these parts. But we're very prepared. Oh, don't mind the mess. No matter how much we clean it, this room always spirals into disarray after a while. Oh, where are we right now? Well, if you must know, this room used to be a lab. Ezekiel Wolfgang Balkin was a chemist. Or, so he claimed. He insisted that mankind's evil would be distilled by a molecular process. Ah, here it is. This ought to do it. A bit overkill, if you ask me. This is like using an elephant rifle on a microbe. <laughs> but it'll get the job done. Most of the brews and potions here were created with a single thought in mind. Humans carry evil deep within themselves. Regardless of how you feel about it, human nature can take some unexplained turns for the worse. If you don't believe me, you can ask Mr. Simon. A few days ago, a drifter by the name of Mr. Simon stumbled upon our front door. He was riddled with dark thoughts and a hefty amount of bourbon. His eyes bore an exquisite and painful guilt. Normally, I wouldn't serve a drink to such an individual. <laughs> Especially if he had no money. But he gave me an offer I just couldn't resist. A story in exchange for more poison for his liver. I don't know exactly what he was looking for at the end of that whiskey. But whatever it was, it seemed to help him deal with the demons gnawing at his skull. I'm poor as shit. I work as a tree trimmer, which pays okay, but I got child support payments coming out the wazoo. Turns out my reckless youth and latex allergy have come back to bite me in the ass more than I thought they would. Most months, after my exes and estranged children get their share, I take home a little less than $700. My family can't help. My mom lives nearby, but she's old enough to have been drawing social security for decades. I got a brother Jeff out in New York who could probably contribute a few dimes, but I don't want to bother him. I haven't talked to either of them in a few years, truth be told. I get a little financial help from the government, but not much. Because of my financial condition, I don't exactly live in the Playboy Mansion. But I do alright. I've got an apartment out in rural Colorado, in a little town called Gilliman. There's some nice property out in western Gilliman. Unfortunately, I don't live in western Gilliman. My place is in Eastern Gilliman, in a neighborhood that the locals affectionately call The Fungus. One look at my building will tell you why. The exterior cement walls are decorated with decay. Looks like one of those trippy splatter paintings, but if, like, instead of being on mushrooms when he made it, the artist made it out of mushrooms. Luckily, the neighbors aren't too bad. We got a few crazies and ex-cons, but they leave me alone. Some people might mind all the drug dealers, but I don't cut me a special rate, you see. Anyways, I'm telling you all of this because it's the kind of neighborhood where a couple of G-men in tailored suits look particularly out of place. 
So imagine my surprise when I get a knock on my door around 9pm last Monday. Damn buzzer's broken. I find a couple of suits standing outside my people. Just like a couple of suits to interrupt you in the middle of a Twilight Zone marathon, right? I figured it was one of my ex's lawyers trying to squeeze a little more blood out of this old stone. So I decided to pretend like I wasn't home. I had only taken a few steps away from the peephole when I heard a cheery voice through the door. Mr. Simon, we know you're home. We can see your silhouette through the window. If you'd kindly open the door, we'd just like to talk. The voice sounded upbeat. Its owner tapped a few times on the window next to the door. Through the blinds, I saw a genuine grin on his face. One of those lippy grins where the person doesn't open their mouth. Shit. I reluctantly pried the door open a crack to look at the men. They were both well-groomed white men. The man who'd called my name stood in front. He was a short fellow, clad in a light charcoal winter suit and carrying a nondescript black briefcase. His handsome face was complemented by a perfectly trimmed black beard and haircut, which made him look like Ryan Gosling playing the role of a mortician. The only bit of color in his whole ensemble was a dark red tie that peeked out of the top of his suit. The taller man behind him compensated for the Ryan Gosling type's lack of color with a bright blue suit and a weathered pink tie. This man was gigantic, standing at 6 foot 5. He was also significantly older, his white mustache and wrinkles accentuated by his plantation owner glasses. Look guys, I already made my child support payments this month. Y'all already bled me dry. The grinning Ryan Gosling looked back at his partner. Oh no, Mr. Simon, we're not here for anything like that. We're from the federal government. We'd like to speak with you a bit if you have a moment. The federal government? Yes, sir. The bank. Treasury Department, that is. My name is Grant Howers. This is Peter Aramon. May we come in? The grin persisted on the man's face. I looked back at my dingy apartment and shrugged. Guess so. Don't mind the mess. I don't usually have guests. I motioned the two men into my apartment. They glanced around briefly, then proceeded towards my cozy little kitchen where I had a few wooden chairs. Without a word, they quickly made themselves comfortable. Perplexed, I followed them to the last open chair. What's this all about? You guys doing a census? No, sir. Nothing like that either. Mr. Howard said, still with a slight grin. He folded his hands and set them neatly on the table in front of him. The older man, Mr. Ehrman, who had not yet spoken, folded his hands the same way and chimed in with a raspy southern accent. Actually, sir, you're in a position to earn yourself a small fortune. My ears perked up. Is that right? Yes, it is. Of course, that's only if you're willing to work with us. What do you mean, work with you? The two men, whose chairs were across a small table from me, exchanged a quick glance. Mr. Simon, would you do me a favor and take a look out of that window? The younger man motioned towards a small window behind them. I shrugged and took a look. The window frames the parking lot. I live on the ground floor. Outside, I saw my truck and a few other cars. There was a group of men, also clad in suits, looking in the windows of my truck with flashlights. Who the hell are they? I spun back around. I felt a bit of nervous sweat gathering under my arms. Same as us. They're from the bank, said Mr. Howers. Son, I regret to inform you that we have been watching you for the last few weeks. We are aware of all of your habits, your tastes, and uh, even... Mr. Airman motioned to my small apartment. Your economic condition. We apologize for any imposition. It is not our intent to make you nervous or upset. 
Harris's words slipped out of a small crack in the center of his grin. I thought back to the last few weeks. My mind conjured images of nondescript sedans that seemed to follow me for just a little longer than usual. A clerk at the gas station who looked somewhat out of place, a stranger that seemed to watch me as I cut rotten branches off an old aspen. Signs that meant nothing until now. My face felt hot. I turned around and stomped towards the men with a finger outstretched. What gives you the right? I'm a citizen. I have rights. Mr. Harris's grin spread almost to his ears, as if that was even possible, and he raised his hands in a defensive motion. Now, now, let's not let our tempers flare. I'm sure you find the existence of our previous surveillance quite unnerving, and for that I apologize. But take me at my word when I say that you stand to benefit immensely from the knowledge we've gained. My anger subsided a bit, although I still felt hot and... and invaded. Like you found out someone has been reading your text messages without you knowing? An uneasy, dirty feeling. You two better explain what the hell you're talking about right now. Mr. Simon, we've become acutely aware of your economic condition, and we would like to offer you a tax-free gift of one million dollars to be deposited into your bank account at your earliest convenience. Mr. Howers said, producing his briefcase from underneath the table. He took a stack of papers out of it and then returned the case to the floor. He rotated the stack around and pointed to a numeric figure in the middle, which had been bolded and underlined. One million dollars. My jaw must have dropped all the way to the floor because I found myself temporarily unable to speak. There is a condition, however. Mr. Airman added. His accent distorted the er so that however sounded like however. What's that, I said, suddenly feeling like I was floating. Mr. Airman produced a second briefcase from underneath the table. His was locked with a combination lock, which he fumbled with for a moment before snapping it open. He produced a second stack of papers. He straightened the stack on the table with a thud and then handed me the top sheet. It was a photo of a man in a navy business suit. The man was in his early 30s and still had a gorgeous head of hair. He was walking down a crowded sidewalk. It appeared that he was unaware that the photo was being taken. The man in the photo was familiar to me. It was my big brother, the one in New York. Mr. Salmon, are you familiar with the name Jeff Salmon? Mr. Airman asked. Yes, that's my older brother. Is that a photo of him? He continued. Yes, it is. I looked up from the sheet. Why are you showing me this? Mr. Airman produced a second photo. It showed my brother again. This one had been taken from behind. He was going through a doorway in what looked like a suburban neighborhood. Well, when was the last time you spoke to him? I, I don't know, a few years ago? Seems strange for two brothers to go years without speaking. Mr. Howers added. I looked at him over the picture, suddenly wishing he'd wipe that little smirk off his face. Yeah, well, some families ain't that close. Jeff and I never had any great falling out. One day we exchanged a few text messages and then we just never talked again. Our family had never been very sentimental. Mom and Dad got divorced when we were young. Jeff went to live with my dad in Connecticut when I was five. And I lived with my mom in Colorado. We saw each other on holidays for a while. But after he graduated from Yukon and moved out to New York, his visits got less frequent. Once he got married and had a normal family to cut the turkey with, he stopped visiting altogether. 
The last time I saw him in person was at her father's funeral. He missed most of the wake because he had to take a business call. I stared at the men across the table from me. I motioned for them to continue. With a slow nod, Mr. Airman produced three more pictures from his stack. He laid them in front of me in a neat line. The leftmost picture was a still from a surveillance camera that depicted a middle-aged man, likely my brother, at a hardware store. He appeared to be purchasing a large amount of metal and a bottle filled with some chemical. The center picture showed a strange contraption sitting in an unfinished basement. There had been a similar basement in my house when I was younger, and I always hated going in it because of the long-standing fear of spiders that I had. The contraption consisted of several bottles and metal piping. There was a small computer attached to the piping which had a few blurry lines of code on it. The last photo was a printout from some blog. I quickly glanced over the text on the page. It appeared to be a blog post, some sort of right-wing rant. It read, Stupid New York liberals can't get their heads out of their asses long enough to realize they got a good thing. Would I have voted for the president? Maybe if my loudmouth bitch of a wife wasn't looking over my shoulder while I was filling out the ballot. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Still voted for him or not, you gotta love his moxie. His tweets, practically works of art. The way he tells it like it is. You'd think all these New Yorkers would be following his example. Nope. Instead, they're continuing the same basic shit they've been doing for the last 20 years. Undermining the administration, making a fuss out of women's rights and what the gays are doing. Who the fuck cares? And now I hear that the New York State Legislature is passing all these laws supporting pussy immigrants and shit. Somebody ought to teach them a lesson. Somebody ought to show all those liberal politician cucks what happens when you allow a bunch of terrorists into their country. Boom! Boom! I mean, hell, one explosion takes out half these guys and I can guarantee that we would become a little more careful of who we let into our country. Sorry, liberals. Is that too xenophobic for you? Let freedom ring, baby! G.S. I stared at the screenshot, reading it again several times. What is this stuff? I asked, looking at the grinning face and small round glasses staring back at me from across the table. Mr. Airman placed a wrinkled finger on the leftmost photo, the surveillance camera footage, in a deliberate manner. That's your brother. We took that two weeks ago. His finger drifted to the screenshot of the blog post. This blog post was traced to your brother's IP address. Those are his initials at the bottom. We have reason to believe he wrote it. It was uploaded less than 24 hours before the surveillance camera footage was taken. He picked up the picture of the basement contraption and held it up so I could see. And this, Mr. Simon, is an attempt at making an explosive device using hardware store materials. This photo was taken in your brother's basement. He built a bomb? I asked, staring at the strange glass jars and metal pieces of the contraption. Well, not technically, Mr. Howards chimed in, because it doesn't actually work. FBI technicians have determined that if he attempted to use this device, it would likely fail to explode. It's a dud. Of course, we know that, but we are yet unsure if your brother does. It doesn't really matter what he knows, Mr. Airman muttered. Quite right. The real point is that he attempted to build an explosive device after writing that blog post, 
and that he has shown significant evidence of intent to cause bodily harm to a lot of people. I leaned over in my chair until it was on the verge of tipping over. My mind was swimming with images of my brother. A mild-mannered finance major who played league softball on his college team. A successful businessman who sent mom flowers on her birthday and Mother's Day every year. A little boy in a stained Tom and Jerry crew neck who taught me how to tie my shoes and let me play with his Legos when mom and dad were drunk and fighting in the other room. But now, terrorist? A right-wing nutjob? It had been a few years since I'd talked to my brother, but I found myself in disbelief. We understand that this is a lot to take in. Do you need a moment? I looked up from the photo of the bomb. I, I don't get it. Why are you showing me this? One last photo, Mr. Simon. The older man produced a final sheet from his suitcase. It was a photograph, but it was grainy from enlarging it several times. In the photograph, I saw an image of five men sitting around a folding table. On the table were a series of papers that were too blurry to make out. Four of the men were wearing white t-shirts, and one of them was in a baggy suit that hung off its frame. I noticed a startling detail. One of the men in short sleeves had a tattoo peeking out from under his arm. I couldn't see all of it, but it appeared to be a swastika. The man in the suit is your brother. Mr. Howers added, tapping on the man in the picture. He was facing us, but it was difficult to make out in the enlarged picture. Your brother is the leader of a group of white supremacist terrorists. There are more than just five in this photo, but we believe these men are all involved in a plot to orchestrate a massive terrorist event. Mr. Airman neatly stacked the papers and tucked them back inside his briefcase. The light was behind me, and I could see my reflection in his little glasses. My reflection's eyes were wet with tears. My brother is a terrorist? We believe he wants to be, Mr. Simon. All I could picture was my brother's face as he handed me a box of little plastic bricks. With chubby cheeks and missing baby teeth, he asked me whether I wanted to help him build a pirate ship. Why don't you just arrest him? I whispered. We could. Mr. Howards began, unfolding his hands and stroking his beard. But we are worried it would have a detrimental effect. As I mentioned earlier, he's the ringleader of a somewhat sizable group of would-be terrorists. It is our belief that an arrest could exacerbate already existing tensions within the group. What does this have to do with me? Mr. Howers began to speak, but more senior Mr. Airman caught him off quickly. Son, your brother is a threat to this world. We have brought you a substantial financial offer because we believe the only way to eliminate this threat is to take action that would otherwise be considered illegal. We'd like to give you a tax-free gift of $1 million. In exchange, we'd like your consent and your brother's life. I found myself speechless once again. Every time I opened my mouth to speak, it felt like something in my throat was holding back the words. We understand that what we are asking is disturbing in nature. Please trust that we have come before you with this request because we acknowledge the grave nature of this endeavor. The mur- Mr. Howers paused, searching for words. When we end his life, it will be painless. It will be orchestrated to look like an accident. No one will know but you. However, we respect a family member's wishes to participate in this process. It is the bank's policy to include them in the decision. What about his wife? Our mother? He and his wife are in the process of a separation. Her intent has no bearing on the matter. As for your mother, 
Her late age and emotional distance from your brother lead us to believe that she does not care about your brother. Our evidence suggests that they haven't spoken in months. Why even ask me? Could you off him and make it look like an accident? The two men exchanged another glance, which surprised me. Although previously calm and collected, the men looked suddenly disheveled. Mr. Airman had removed his glasses and was dabbing at his forehead with a handkerchief. Mr. Howers had loosened his tie and was absent-mindedly plucking at his beard. Mr. Simon, began the younger man, we are not evil. Your brother risks hurting many people. Our job is to minimize the potential damage that he could cause. That includes making sure his family is taken care of. We are human. We wish to cause as little pain as possible. I stared into the pigsty I called an apartment. There were old TV dinner trays sitting in the corner, a roach scuttled under the closet door as my gaze shifted to a pile of unwashed clothes beside the TV. A million dollars would solve a lot of financial woes. You don't have to decide right now. We have reason to believe your brother will not act on his ill intent for the next few weeks. If you'd like, we can leave you a business card. You can call us at any time. I nodded. Suddenly, I'd become very tired. My body felt heavy. The men packed up their belongings and handed me a single business card. I stood up to walk them out the door. Mr. Howers walked through the door out to the parking lot, but Mr. Airman stopped in the doorway. He turned to me and pulled a small piece of paper out of his breast pocket. Even before he showed it to me, I could tell it was one last photograph. He handed it to me. It was a woman in a neatly tailored pantsuit, sitting at a large wooden desk. She was holding a baby in her arms. There was a little girl next to her in a pink dress and black curls. On the desk, there sat a plaque that read, New York State Senator. Mr. Ehrman left the picture with me. He only said four words to me before turning and leaving me standing in the open doorway of my apartment. He pointed to the little girl with curly hair and told me, These are the stakes. For the next few days, I felt trapped. I called in sick to work. I ate very little. Most of the time, I just stared at the TV. Sometimes I would turn it on and try to watch the news or football, but I found my mind wandering back to my brother. Back to the pictures from Mr. Airman's black suitcase. Back to the box of Legos my brother gave me. Back to the bomb he built. Back to the Thanksgiving spent together. Back to the Nazi tattoo. Back to the words of his blog post. My loudmouth bitch of a wife, pussy immigrants, liberal politician cucks. Thought a lot about the New York State Senator and her family. They looked so serene in that photo. They looked so confident. They looked fragile too, like a piece of fine glass. Sharp, beautiful, easy to shatter. Ultimately though, it was the memories of my brother and me as kids that made my decision for me. The time he showed me how to do long division. The time we stayed up all night building a pillow fort in our living room. The way we cried when our parents split us up. Although we had drifted apart, I loved my brother dearly. Those kids deserved a better chance than we had. Because of that, I called Mr. Airman and told him to do it. I told him to deposit the money into my account. I told him to murder my brother. It took a few days before the news officially reached us. An overdose. His wife had no idea that he had been taking pills. She said he'd been acting irrational lately, 
depressed, sleeping poorly, paranoid even. The cops thought that was good enough evidence that he was a junkie. The money showed up on my account a few days later. I quit my job the same day. I'm gonna save most of the money. Maybe leave it to the daughters of that New York senator? I'm content to stay poor. The money wasn't what led me to my decision. I wish that was the end of this story, but it isn't. I've reconnected with my mother, you see. After the whole visit from the bank, I figured it was a sign that I should hold the remaining family in my life close while I still could. She's gone a bit loony in her old age. Her social security checks pay for her lodging and care in an elder care facility, but not a lot else. Mom's eyesight is mostly gone, and her mind is quickly going with it. Still, she was sharp enough to recognize my voice. I'm gonna try to visit her every day now. Yesterday she told me she had a bunch of mail for me. I asked what she meant. Before I knew it, she had produced a whole box worth of envelopes addressed to me. All of them with the same return address. Jeff Simon. P.O. Box 211-19, New York, New York, 11201. She had been receiving them for the past few years, but had repeatedly forgotten to tell me. Old age can be a bitch. I read them in chronological order. Looks like my older brother had been trying to contact me for a while. It broke my heart to see that I had ignored him for so long. He must not have known my address, instead sending them to mom in hopes that I would visit her. I just hadn't made the effort until now. As I read through them, my heart began to beat faster and faster. October 2016. Don, I wish you'd reply to my letters. I miss you. The world seems like it's getting worse. Our family should be together. November 2016. I can't believe what's happened, Don. I didn't think the election would go this way. Maybe I'm a New York liberal, but I've never felt so defeated. My wife is heartbroken. Please respond. You were always so good in times like this. June 2017. Please, just let me know if you're getting these letters. The world is getting so hard to be a part of. I could use your love in a world so riddled with hate. November 2017. Please, send something back, Don. You must hate me if you've gone this long without replying. Lindsay is leaving me, Don. I can't stop thinking about how bad the world has become in the last year. I'm so alone. Please, write me back. The letters confused me. They resurrected feelings of guilt, sadness, and confusion from depths where I thought they might be buried after I made the call. Plus, Jeff didn't sound like the kind of guy who would write an ultra-right-wing blog. He sounded like... Well, he sounded like a New York liberal. All became clear when I read the last letter. It was dated January 8th of this year. Don, I did a stupid thing. Turns out that I'm not as good as I thought when it comes to finances. I borrowed a lot of money from some weird banking group. I'm talking an illegal amount of money. Then, I made some bad investments. These guys are dangerous, Don. They threatened to kill Lindsay. I tried to reason with them. They told me that I deserved to die. That scum like me was worthless. They told me that not even my own family cares about me enough to justify my existence. Then they made me a deal. I didn't want to make it, but it seemed like the only way. 
They said they could convince you to let me die. If you did it, they'd pay you. If you didn't, I'd get to live. They bet me that they could convince you of anything. That I was evil, that I was a pedophile, a criminal, a Nazi. And they said that you'd choose to believe it because you didn't really care about me. I know I'm not the best brother, but I know that you know me and that you know who I am. You know I'm not some monster. I consider trying to call you, but I'm afraid they've tapped my phones. If men from the bank come to you, don't accept any deals from them. Don't believe their lies. I'm relying on you, brother. Please, prove that someone in this fucking world still cares about me. Please. Love, Jeff. Hand me over that flask, will you? Whoa, watch it, not that one. You don't want to open that one. No, that's no child. It's just one of Ezekiel's failed experiments. See, he tried to artificially inseminate a woman with what he called the seed of Cain. The seed of evil. What you see there, floating inside that vial, is the result of such genetic grotesquerie. According to some of the pages of his journal, any life created by this seed was short and brutal. After literally gnawing and clawing out of the room of her surrogate mother, they exploded into a rainbow of flesh, bone, and blood. Speaking of exploding guts, that reminded me of a story I heard some nights ago by a troubled man. He claimed he had seen something that shouldn't exist. At exactly 9.47 p.m. on the northeast quadrant of an endless diamond field across the black wild yonder, you'll be able to gaze upon a star that doesn't belong there. After my usual double and triple checking, I concluded that this cosmic anomaly should be nothing more than a slate of vacuum. And yet there it was. It defied any logic with its eerie glow, only to implode 13 seconds later, leaving behind no trail to follow and a perplexed astronomer scratching his head. Naturally, I should have reported this, but I was afraid those fame-hungry hounds at Lincoln University would strip me of any credit for such a peculiar sky phenomenon. Even as a young boy playing with my makeshift telescope made out of a Coke can and a magnifying glass, I dreamt about deciphering the inner machinations of the universe. For an astronomer, having any celestial body named after oneself is pretty much the peak of their career. After countless hours of droning on my telescope, I was finally at the brink of a breakthrough, or so I thought. The star shone with unbridled ferocity. It dwarfed the other stars around it with its pulsing psychedelic purple flare arcs. Suddenly, a sable mass bursted out of its core, snuffing it into zilch instantly. I scoured the rest of the quadrant to try to find any trace of the mysterious event. Nothing. I sat there, at the edge of rural Nebraska, the only decent place to have a serious field astronomical assessment, struggling to make any sense out of this. A small chuckle escaped out of me, so close and yet so far. I continued my futile search for more than five hours. A cool summer breeze blew through the dark field, swaying the tall lush of wheat with an almost motherly gentleness. At about 3 a.m., I decided to pack my telescope and swallow my pride. I had lost the battle, but not the war. I scribbled down my location on my painfully outdated map and walked back to the bus station a couple miles south. 
A call startled my stroll. I dug my phone out of my front pocket. Gerald Woods, or as I like to call him, the Herald of Bad News, decided to call me at 3.49 a.m. Where the hell are you, man? Dean Richards is looking all over for you. Please tell me you didn't leave your post. I can't say that I'm particularly proud of abandoning my duties as a researcher, but if there was anything worth lying about, this was it. So I kept digging myself into a bigger hole. What? No, man. I just had to run a quick errand. I'll be there in no time, I replied. Well, hurry it up, or else Richards is going to want your head on a pike. On my way back, I took my query to Google in hopes of finding anything even remotely familiar to what I had witnessed. But I arrived at the observatory with nothing to show but a couple of wheat straws stuck in my jacket and a questionable story that I was not ready to talk about just yet. Dean Richards was awaiting outside the observatory. Stanley Richards wore his usual brown sweater with the embroidered Lincoln University on it and his traditional scowl which he was seldom ever seen without. One of his eyebrows plucked upward at the sight of me. What is the meaning of this? Sir, I can explain. Nonsense! You abandon your post! You know how important our research is right now? The committee is visiting next week for budget funding. I'm sorry, Dean. Sorry doesn't cut it, Mr. Colt. You are a brilliant astronomer, but your irresponsible behavior. Richards fixed his auburn mane. He took a deep breath, the largest I've ever seen him take, and then he stared straight into my eyes. You're fired. I tried to retort, but only empty air and a bit of shame came out of my lips. A thousand thoughts rushed into my brain. It was a clutter, a hurricane of ideas. They rode too fast and too violently to focus on any of them. They barely even mattered. When I came back from the maelstrom inside my little crazy head, Dean Richards was long gone, and only the sound of students, teachers, and faculty workers going about their business surrounded me. I walked out of the campus trying to avoid any judgmental glares from my co-workers and students. I was not the first one Dean Richards had fired in public, and I bet I wouldn't be the last. Eventually, it hit me. I was free. For the first time in God knows how many years, I could do anything I wanted. A nudge from the responsible side of my brain urged me to assess the situation. I was jobless, and without a job I would be homeless in a matter of weeks. But the freedom tasted so damn good for a change. I opened a Michelob Ultra and a bottle of carrot when I arrived at my apartment. After the third round of the Michelob-carrot combo, the room started to bend and warp. I must have fallen asleep shortly after. A blast of wails suddenly ambushed my ears. Instead of my crummy two-bedroom apartment, I laid upon a field of gray sand and a starless obsidian sky. A second wave of ghoulish cries thundered across the monochromatic landscape. As the howling continued, I realized no vocal cords from man or beast could make such acoustic aberrations. They carried a palpable, malevolent bliss. When the third wave came, I was certain these were the sounds of hell, or perhaps something far worse than hell, if such a thing even existed. I spotted a river of unnatural black water. I could not see anything further than my own reflection on the flowing stream. Being the only landmark I could hold on to, I followed it. After walking two miles downstream, the river died on an ocean of the same mysterious black fluid. A new concert of shrieks began. Hundreds of severed heads emerged from the black ocean and floated away into the sky, some screaming in agony, others laughing in a macabre pitch. Their faces were a mangle of malformations and appendages. I could not decide what was worse, their gruesome appearance or their horrific yelps. The heads soared about 20 feet before exploding abruptly into bits. A thick cloud of flesh, bone, and gut rained down into the black waters. The whole process would repeat itself five minutes later. In five minutes after that, I wanted to look away, but I found myself mesmerized by the grisly spectacle. 
A sharp pain on my ankle snapped me out of my trance. A pale, slender tendril that had probably slithered out of the sand furiously squeezed my left ankle. The more it clamped itself around me, the more I could feel its tiny needle-like thorns sinking into my skin. Without giving it any thought, I jerked my leg, slashing my ankle open and away from the probing tentacle. It retreated into the sand, vanishing under the vast silver grains. A roar boomed out of the ocean, followed by the sky radiating this odd and yet familiar pulsing violet afterglow. A splitting pain overtook my body. A figure, a blur of white, appeared at the edge of the ocean. Its delicate silhouette reminded me of a woman, and for some strange reason, the name Amanda was whispered subtly, constantly into my ears. Uh, Am Amanda, I called out. Her features became more pronounced and solid. Her head turned to both sides, as if she was looking for someone. Two pale tentacles protruded from the water and tried to envelop her, but they couldn't. It's difficult to explain, but they struggled to pin her down, as if she was not completely there, not solid enough for them to seize her. Amanda! Amanda! As I saw one of the tentacles grasp her arm, the world flipped on me. My eyes opened again, this time back in my apartment. I was covered in a layer of cold sweat which had almost made a puddle under my sheets. I took in a big gush of air and climbed off my bed. A rumble in my gut dictated the next step. There was an Arby's within walking distance from my place. As I reached the front knob of my apartment building, half of me expected to see that hellish desert once I opened the door. The other half was right. It was just a calm, warm afternoon in Lincoln. My fears slowly thawed away by the soothing summer sunlight. Small tides of people strode the sidewalk, busy businessmen gawking at their wristwatches, probably realizing they're late. An old woman walking with her French mini toy poodle. Today was probably one of the best days to take her pet out on a walk. A mother with a small boy coughing, probably with a cold or a flu. And that would have all been fine if the boy didn't have one of the malformed heads of my dream melded on his neck. I froze, unable to cope with the kid's fiendish barnacle. I blinked, and blinked, and blinked once more, wishing that my nightmare would end. The mother caressed the boy's chin, unaware of the now cackling parasite lodged in her son. I wish I didn't have the chance to get closer to it. A series of translucent tubes connected the boy and the revolting appendage. The creature exchanged fluids with him through some of them, while the rest of its transparent veins only injected some sort of murky flammer ooze. It giggled. After hearing their screams of agony in my dreams, I thought no sound on this earth would ever make me shiver again. Yet this grating, haunting giggle, not made for our ears, made my stomach churn and numbed the back of my neck. Excuse me, ma'am, ma'am, I said. Huh? She responded, dumbfounded by my sudden approach. I hate to be one of those guys, but what's that on your son's neck? The doctor says he has a rash. I think he has measles. There's been an outbreak in Omaha. No, I mean, what is that thing on his neck? I took out my phone and took a picture. Look, I cried out, but the creature would not appear in it. The boy then squirmed and dug his face into one of his mother's thighs. It might have been my imagination, but I think he could see it too, or at the very least feel that something was wrong. His mother, however, could not. Sir, please leave us alone. Good day. Their pace became an agitated waltz, and with a final glare by his mother, they turned the corner at the end of the sidewalk, disappearing into the crowd. Was I going insane? Never in my life have I experienced such an episode of hallucinations. I ignored my rumbling belly and I decided to head to Bryan West Medical Plaza. Something had to be wrong with me. I saw more of them, attached to small children and the elderly, all cackling to the same sickening tune. 
No one minded them at all, as if they didn't even exist. I barged into the ER. A woman, maybe in her 40s, with streaks of white running down her brown hair, stood behind a desk of piled up medical files. Help, I think I'm seeing things that aren't there, I said. Calm down, sir. I'm going to need you to fill out this form, okay? What is your emergency? I keep seeing these things. I had a dream I... A barrage of cackles behind stopped me. I looked back at the lineup of the beds in the ER. They were filled with children, most of them panting while others drooled out of their mouths. They scratched wildly at their bodies, almost ripping their skins off. Then one of the kids started convulsing. A burst of beeps and alarms boomed out of the vital signs monitor connected to him. The lady at the desk grabbed the phone and after dialing a series of digits, had control of the hospital speakers. Code blue, ER, code blue. A team of paramedics rushed the boy. None of them could see the bulging head, now the size of a watermelon, pulsing and quivering. Its chuckle became a roar of laughter. With one final wah, it exploded. The paramedics connected the boy to the defibrillator. After a stern indication by their lead paramedic, they all stepped away from the boy's body. A piercing crescendo came out of the machine, followed by a dry buzz, similar to the kind of sound an electrical appliance makes when it shorts out its fuse. The boy's body contorted for two seconds before falling back on his bed. After the first shock, one of them performed CPR while the others frantically injected substance after substance into the boy's arm. They all stepped back once more and shocked him one final time. Time of death, 6.43 p.m., July 8th, 2017, the leader said. They all looked at each other in silent disappointment. I wish I could have consoled them. I wish I could have told them that the boy couldn't be saved by him. Heck, I don't even know if he could have been saved by anyone. I don't understand what sort of creatures they are or where they came from. All I can tell you is that they seem to live to cause immeasurable amounts of affliction on their host, only to go out with them as a morbid firework, celebrating with a feral, unnatural roar that their horrid mission was fulfilled. I've counted 36 of them in the hospital alone. I don't know how many of them are out there. I doubt this is only happening in Omaha and Lincoln. I've been fighting the urge to sleep for the past couple of nights, but when my body finally shuts down due to exhaustion, I go back to that hellhole. The ocean, the heads, and the ghastly operation continues. I could have sworn I saw the head of that boy that died in the ER yesterday float out on the dark water. Google may not have the answer to everything, but it found Amanda. Amanda Lurkins was here. It's a 12-hour ride to Marfa. I can only hope she still lives there. Amanda, if you see this, Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Done and done. We only need one more thing. Please, follow me. We need to make one quick stop at the kitchen. <laughs> the media branded him as a mad chemist after a couple of his research projects made it into the newspapers. That's when the Vulcans decided to burden Jeremiah with his brother. Most likely out of fear of his public backlash against the rest of the family members. And since Jeremiah was already an outcast, he provided Ezekiel with sanctuary until the end of his days. Oh, why are we stopping in the kitchen? <laughs> well, a young hunter once told me that in order to catch a prey. You need good bait. Douse a few cornbreads with this, and they'll never notice until it's too late. <laughs> oh, don't give me that look. Compared to some of the stories I've heard, I consider myself a very merciful executioner. Hmm. 
If only you knew the sort of ideas people come up with in order to kill and maim. Oh, the things I've heard. Enough to make your stomach turn and revolt in disgust. But that's exactly what you came for, right? For a bite of horror you came. And a bite of horror you shall have, my traveler. I got a gift for you, Miss Carver. Matthew stood in front of my desk, holding out a big chocolate chip cookie. I have to say, I was surprised. Matthew and I didn't exactly get off on the right foot. His grades were bad, and whenever I corrected him during class, I could hear him muttering, You're stupid, or so ugly, under his breath but I knew his parents were going through a nasty divorce, and he was only nine, so I let it slide. And it seems my efforts paid off. Thank you, that's so sweet, I said, placing it in the middle of my desk. To tell the truth, I didn't really want to eat the cookie. I was on a strict no-sugar diet to lose five pounds before my friend's wedding this weekend, so... I didn't eat the cookie that morning. It just sat there, nestled between my pencil holder and stack of flashcards. But before lunch, Matthew came up to me and asked, Are you going to eat your cookie now, Miss Carver? And finally, I felt kind of bad. So when Matthew came into class after lunch and saw that the cookie was missing, he looked shocked. You ate it? Yes, I did. I said with a smile. It was very good. He sat down in the back row and didn't say anything for the rest of class. I admit, I felt bad for fooling him, but I couldn't break my diet now. It was stashed away in one of my drawers. In the afternoon, I ended class a few minutes early. I had to catch my flight to Miami for the wedding. As I was packing up to leave, I thought of the cookie. I can't just leave it here over the weekend. It'll go bad. Well, maybe I'll bring it, I thought. Just in case I get really hungry on the plane. I wrapped it in a napkin, threw it in my laptop bag, and caught an Uber to the airport. The lines at security were long. When I finally got there, I put my laptop in one of the bins and threw the rest of the bag onto the conveyor belt. But after I passed through the metal detector, I was immediately pulled aside by one of the TSA agents. Ma'am, come with me, she said, leading me down a hallway and into a back room. I'm already late for my flight, I huffed. I might not be able to board. The door swung open. There were several people sitting around the table. Some were TSA agents, others were wearing a uniform I couldn't identify, and they were all staring at the item in the center. The cookie. Dread flooded me. My legs began to shake. Matthew's face flashed through my mind with his toothy grin. In a small voice, I asked, What's going on? One of the officers stepped forward. 
The scanner showed that there's something embedded inside the cookie. Or rather, multiple things. I stared down at it. My vision began to swim. And I gripped the back of the chair for support. What? What's inside it? I asked, my voice trembling. But I was afraid of the answer. Razor blades. Eight of them. Baked right into it. Some of my colleagues keep spreading the myth that Ezekiel's grave is actually empty. And yet no one has dared to dig out his grave in the backyard in order to satisfy our curiosity. Me? Well, I don't buy this legend myself. But let's just say that it wouldn't be the first empty grave out there. Anyway, I think I've bored you enough with this history lesson. Let me finish dealing with our unwanted guests, and I'll show you up to your room. If Ezekiel's journal is right, this should liquefy the insides of whatever's scuttling up there. He never specified what this fluid was actually used for, but it makes one hell of a pesticide. You might want to borrow a couple of earplugs, though. I have an extra pair in the main hall. I don't think having your intestines turned into liquid is a very pleasant experience, judging from the dreadful shrieks I hear whenever I use it. But trust me, it's a necessary evil. We certainly can't have vermin scampering around doing God's knows what to our furniture. So if you would be so kind as to wait here, I'll just take a second. Oh, say again? You're not staying? I mean, it's only like an hour or two. Then it usually mellows down into faint moans. Nothing really to write home about. No? Okay. Well, if you are ever by the area again, please stop by. We always welcome travelers hungry for a good story. Goodbye, traveler. Till we meet again. In this life, or the next. And now it's announcement time. Before you leave, I'd like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices to read these horror tales along with everyone else who's been involved with bringing these horrific tales to life, here at the Cursed Inn. If you're a writer and think your story is sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us a demo at thecursedin at gmail.com. We're always looking for new stories and talents to scare our guests. And please, don't forget to check out the page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.